Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata. In this episode, we will focus on the noose tightening around Gacy's neck as opposed to his victims, as we look at the disappearance of 15-year-old Robert Peast and the ensuing investigation conducted by the Desplaines police as they begin zeroing in on their suspect. I'm compelled to warn you that this episode contains disturbing and graphic content about the taking of a human life. So please exercise caution when listening and also remember, these tapes are 40 years old and were recorded on an old push-button tape recorder. So while we've cleaned them up as much as humanly possible, at times you will have to really focus on what Gacy is saying. And one last friendly reminder, that we will have the accompanying transcript pages on defensediaries.com under the transcript link. This is episode two of the Gacy Tapes, the last piece of the puzzle. On December 11th, 1978, Robert Peast, affectionately referred to by friends and family as Robbie, was working as a stock boy after school at Nissan Pharmacy, which was a small chain located in the Chicagoland area. He worked there part-time as he was saving money to buy his first car when he turned 16. This was a milestone that sadly he would never reach. When I had left the drugstore, first of all, I arrived at the drugstore at 5.30, left at 7 o'clock. When I come home at 7 o'clock, I did uh, some value. Mm -hmm. I only think I did two 10 milligram value. Then I went back. Because I would have never gone back to the store. They called me up and told me that my book was there, and then I decided to go back. Because when I originally was there, I was there with my car. I had no intention of going back there. In fact, I, I was at my house. I cleared the tape off. And when I cleared the tape off, there was a call from from uh, Larry Tor for his brother, stating that, that I had left my Bible. Gacy's contracting company, PDM, was doing a remodeling job on the store. During this time frame, Robbie overheard the guy who was overseeing the work being done tell Larry Torf, the owner, that he'd be hiring people for the summer to work for him at $5 an hour. Robbie didn't approach the man at that point to inquire about a job, which in retrospect, if he had, he may have never ended up in Gacy's clutches. At about 8.30 p.m., Robbie saw the construction guy had returned and thought to himself that this was a great opportunity to ask the man about a job. At about 8.47, Robbie's mom walks into the store. She was coming to pick him up from work so they could go home and celebrate her birthday with the rest of the family. At that point, Robbie noticed that the contractor was leaving the store. And not wanting to blow the opportunity to talk to him, Robbie asked Kim Byers, a co-worker, to give him back his winter jacket she had borrowed it a bit earlier in the evening because the register was near the front door of the store and the cold air blasts were too much for her to handle. Keep this small detail in mind as this particular exchange happens to lead to one of the major breaks in the case. As Robbie was running out of the store, he told his mom, wait here for a few minutes because I gotta see a contractor about a job that's paying $5 an hour. Robbie rushed out of the store before the man could drive away. That moment in time would be the last that Mrs. Peast would ever see her beautiful boy alive. I left the store at age 50. I drove away from the front of the drugstore park in front of the restaurant. He came out and walked over to the truck. He was talking to me on the outside of the truck. I had invited him in the truck. I didn't 
and the trucks going on the air a little time as well until I get a, I make a stop and then I, I'll be coming back up to school. So the road would be to the house that I remember. Came to the house, it, from, from this apartment over to my house, it's got to take, first of all, we didn't leave, and it, was, it had to be nine o'clock. Because I think the news was on the radio when we were driving down to it. We didn't get to my house until about 9.15, 9.20. I know that I had three or four phone calls. Now, I cleared the answering service twice in that period of time. I talked to the electrical contractor. I talked to the plumbing contractor, Max Gusses. Uh, I can't think of who the electrician was. I had talked to somebody else. Talked to Raphael. Raphael wanted to know why I was out of this house yet. She had told him that I hadn't gotten there yet. We, he had talked about a summer job. And I, I told him that I didn't know if I could hire him at all. That he should wait until summer comes. And then I, I, I don't know, I told him there was other ways he could make money. If that's what he was interested in. He didn't like the idea. We didn't give him the idea. Uh, we, we were discussing some sex. Well, then I was saying he put the handcuffs on himself. He put the handcuffs on himself. Okay, uh, I, then I, of course, expounded further on him getting blown, and he didn't like the idea. And then he was scared that he was going to get killed. I don't know. He said he wanted to go home, because he thought someone said he talked that I was going to hire him. So why would you say that? You know. Back at the drugstore, Robbie's mother waited and waited ultimately leaving to head home without her son. What happened next? I don't remember. How was he killed? Strangulation. The rope trick. Or did you put the rope on his neck? Did you have sex with him? No. He was, you know, he was falling on the... He laid on the side of the bed, and I had to leave. The phone was ringing again. But the answering service was on. And I had to clear the answering service. And when I cleared the answering service, this is Johnny, this is Aunt Leon. We're going, we're on our way to the hospital. We're on our way to the hospital. They called us about Uncle Harold. I went and changed my shirt and grabbed my jacket. I changed my pants and shirt, grabbed my jacket, got in the car and took off. Now this had to be 10, 15 or so when I took off. And he was dead? Yeah. Did he have his clothes on? Yeah. You remember the actual killing? Remember no. strangling him? No. You remember carrying him into the bedroom? No, he walked in the bedroom. Why? I told him that's what he keep for the handcuffs for when he wanted the handcuffs. Is that when you killed him in the bedroom? Yeah. From behind or in front of him? No, standing right next to him. Did he struggle? He fell on the floor. See, all I did is, after the rope, he, he was standing there when I put the rope around his neck. He was standing right there. Because all I said, I want to show you something. But I don't, I don't remember. I think he fell on the floor. Because that's when the phone rang because I left. Who was it? The, was your aunt? No, the answering service had covered it. 
But then I had to go call the answering service up to find out who called. So the phone was ringing while you were killing. Yeah, I think so. At around 11.30 p.m., consumed with fraught and worry, she calls the police to report her son missing. She goes on to explain to them that this is a good kid, straight A's, athlete, girlfriend. He's just not the runaway type. Something has happened, and she fears it's something sinister. Well, what happened with that is, actually it was, uh, at that time we dispatched officers to take reports. And it was Officer George Konitschke who who went to the, uh, um, and took the report. And when he... uh, got done with the report, which he would have come in, uh, you know, he was working three to 11 shift at that time. And he came in and he went to uh, juveniles, detect juvenile division. And, you know, in the late seventies, kids were running away. You know, they're constantly happening. In fact, uh, a lot of times uh, they weren't entered in right away into the computer because that was back then was a very meticulous operation to enter anything into the computer. But when he got done with that, he, he made the effort to get a hold of juvenile guys and said, this is not your normal runaway. This kid is just like you just said, an all-American kid, great family life, uh, no girlfriend problems, school problems, anything. There was just no reason for this kid. So then uh, they started looking into it right away. This insistence by Mrs. Peast that someone do something about her missing son cannot be overlooked as it is the turning point in terms of Gacy's reign of terror coming to an end. The next day, December 12th at 9 a.m., the late Lieutenant Joe Kozenzak and of Rafael Tovar arrive at work. Uh, but George, to his everlasting credit, he went back to the location where Robert Peace had last been and got the names of everybody that had been there that night. He did that that evening and then as Things would happen the next morning. I came into work as the early detective, and uh, the Peace family came into the station quite early, wanting to talk to the detectives to see what was being done. Well, uh, the lieutenant uh, Joe Kozenzak uh, was in his office. He came. He comes out to my area and tells me to go get the reports. The lieutenant learns that the missing boy had attended the same high school as his own son, which was Maine West in Desplaines. In light of this fact, he immediately orders an investigation to start. Detectives first compile a list of all the employees that were working at Nissan Pharmacy the night before, including Larry Torf, who, if you remember from earlier, was discussing summer jobs with Gacy. Once the officers are armed with that information, it doesn't take much time for the detectives to figure out that the construction guy was John Wayne Gacy. And at about noon on the 12th, detectives show up at Gacy's house unannounced. They ring the doorbell, no answer. As police gather more and more information about Gacy, the narrative begins to change. Gacy, the businessman, community leader, and party clown who everyone seems to think is such a great guy, is a facade that begins to fade very quickly. As information about Gacy flows in, A much darker picture is being painted as day fades into night. At this point, detectives no longer view Gacy as merely a person of interest, but instead consider him to be the primary suspect in the disappearance of Robert Peast. 
At approximately 8 p.m. on the 12th, the police once again visit Gacy's home. This time, however, Gacy answers the door. Lieutenant Kozenzak informs Gacy of something that, of course, Gacy already knows, which is he is one of the last people to see Robert Peace alive. And because of that, they need him to make a statement. Gacy tells Kozenzak that he will show up at the police station, but that he can't do it right now because he just got a call from his aunt from the hospital informing him that his uncle had just passed away. Kozenzak, still insisting, says, okay, but you need to understand that since you were the last person to see him, we really, really need you to come to the station and make a statement, you know, for the investigation. This really rubs Gacy the wrong way. As ironically, he's upset with the cavalier attitude towards a death in Gacy's family. Unbeknownst to either officer standing in Gacy's doorway is that young Robert Peace's lifeless body is stashed up in Gacy's attic. So as Kozenzak is walking away from Gacy's front door, he turns and tells Officer Summershield that he wants him to sit on the house, but probably about a block down south of the house and out of sight. Now, neither Albrecht or Tovar were present for this contact with Gacy, and they both have very, very different information concerning that surveillance that was left at Gacy's home that night. We actually got lucky that night. I've always said, you know, police work is a lot of hard work, but boy, we really rely on luck a lot of times. And because uh, he had arrived home in in the van and uh, Rossi, I believe, arrived in the Oldsmobile that he had. And uh, what happened was in the way there, the driveway was set up, you can't really see the cars if you're south of, of the house in the back. And when they they followed the, the van thinking it was Casey and by the time they caught up to it, they realized it wasn't him that he had, uh, and there was only one car following, I believe which is why I say we were lucky, because, I mean, had we followed Gacy in the car and found Peace's body in the trunk, the case would have been over. We had no reason to think anything else. We were looking for one person. Well, I'm not sure which one would be the right way, but from uh, how I recollect that I was told about it was Kozenzak and Summershield were there. And um, that um, they talked to him, and like you said, they, he blew him off and said, you know, um, he couldn't. And uh, they left, Kozenzak left, told Summershield to stay there. And I hadn't been aware of Rossi being there. Uh, just that Gacy pulled out um, on, with his car, the Oles, and uh, Summer Shield was trying to follow him. But I mean, one car, you, you can't follow anybody, especially if trying to be covert. And Casey lost him very quickly. Now, Gacy tells Coz and Zach that he, he gets it. He needs to come in and make a statement. He guesses that he'll probably be able to get there around 11 o'clock. Well, 11 o'clock comes and goes, still no Gacy. He calls over to the police station at some point and informs them that he'll be there soon. They wait until about one o'clock in the morning. He's still a no-show. At that point, they decide to go home for the night. Fast forward to about 3.30 in the morning. Gacy saunters into the police station, asking for Lieutenant Kozenzak. 
The cop at the desk looks at the man and sees that he's covered in mud from head to toe. He tells him that Kozenzak is left for the night. It's 3.30 in the morning, and he should try to call him tomorrow. Before he can leave the building, the cop calls out to him and says, Uh, hey buddy, uh, why y'all covering in mud there, pal? Gacy concocts some story that he tells the cop, but you can bet your ass that it was in no way, shape, or form related to how he actually got muddy, which was from trying to push his car out of the mud that he gets stuck in when he's disposing of Rob P.'s body in the displays. You recall hiding the body where because possibly there was uh, patrol cars or barge in there, or because you were stuck. You were just stuck with the body in the trunk. On December 13th, Casey does in fact call at around 11 a.m. and says he'll come in, and as promised, Casey shows up. He's questioned and maintains his story that he never spoke with Robert Peast and certainly never left Nissan Pharmacy with him. Kozenzak and every other officer investigating the peace disappearance are not buying what Gacy is selling, at all. As a matter of fact, while Gacy is sitting in the interrogation room with various detectives, a complaint for warrant is prepared and presented to a judge for issuance, and is granted. The warrant, which was issued on December 13th, authorized a search of Gacy himself, his home at 8213 West Summerdale in Norwood Park, and three of his vehicles, which were a black van with PDM on the side, a black pickup with PDM on the side, and his black 79 Olds Delta 88, which looked a hell of a lot like a cop car. If I heard the CB saying Smokey the Bear was around, a lot of people would refer to my black car as an unmarked Smokey, Smokey the Bear. Now here I want to talk about why that first warrant is so important. It's because this is the first opportunity that officers are going to have to be able to get into Gacy's house. Not only to look for Robert Peast, who they are hoping is still alive, which they obviously don't know at that point, but if they can't find Peace himself, they can at least find some kind of evidence that shows that Peast had been in that house. In order for the police to obtain a warrant to search our homes, they must show that probable cause exists that a crime has been committed. The police, in order to show that they have probable cause, have to prepare what is called a complaint for search warrant, which is sworn on oath. Typically, the police work hand in hand with the state's attorney's office in drafting the complaint, because if it's poorly drafted or not specific enough as to what they are searching for, or does not contain enough facts that amount to probable cause, and the warrant is issued and executed, meaning that the searches take place, then, when and if the defendant is arrested, any decent defense attorney will look at this warrant and complaint post-haste. If the defense attorney believes that the warrant is deficient for any of the reasons that I've stated earlier, he or she will file a motion to quash, not squash, which is commonly confused, much like moot and mute, or blood splatter and blood spatter. So a motion to quash the warrant operates to suppress all the evidence found as a result of the search conducted on the bad warrant under the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. Think of that exactly as it sounds. If the tree is rotten at its roots, the fruit that it produces will be rotten as well. So when you hear people say, he got off on a technicality, this is exactly what they're talking about. And it's not a technicality. It's actually our incredibly precious Fourth Amendment right 
that protects each and every one of us from unreasonable searches and seizures of our persons and homes by the government. Our founding fathers thought that that particular right was important enough to draft an amendment to the Constitution about it. And frankly, without it, we would be living in a police state where law enforcement could just show up at our homes and come in and search them unfettered. That is a scary thought. The point of me going through that little lesson was not to bore the shit out of you. And I'm sorry if I did. But instead, it was to illustrate the importance of the drafting of the complaint for warrant. Because if the trial judge disagrees with the judge that issued the warrant about any aspects of that warrant, the end result is that the evidence collected could be tossed out and would not be able to be used by the state at trial. And one thing is for certain, that my father and Sam Amaranti would be scrutinizing that warrant and any that would follow in order to keep crucial evidence from being introduced into evidence at trial. As you can imagine, that type of loss of evidence would be absolutely catastrophic to the state in terms of them meeting their burden of proof to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant had committed the crime. And typically what happens in that situation is that the state nolly processes the case or dismisses it altogether. So you can see how absolutely crucial this first warrant was in getting Gacy off the streets. So I asked lead prosecutor Bill Kunkel what his impression of that first warrant was as drafted. But it really didn't paint a basis for a connection between some of the items that they actually recovered uh, or even the ones that did wind up at trial since Judge Garippo uh, did not suppress the war any evidence based on that warrant. Uh, some of the serious pieces of evidence. Well, here's the point. If, if you just say search for Robert Peast and search for evidence of the detention of Robert Peast, that's too broad. Uh, if you ask him to search for ropes and handcuffs, you know, uh, or whatever, if you have some basis for that, then we can argue about whether they did or not. Uh, I think you would have a basis for that in any detention, uh, but at least put it in there. But uh, the bottom line is there was no kind of bridge between any specific items, and that's a, a common problem uh, with, uh, with search warrants. And so, for instance, narcotics involved uh, police officers and uh, other law enforcement groups dealing in those kinds of cases, you know, have are very well schooled and very well experienced in, in very, being very specific about it. Firearms, same thing. Well, he showed me the gun and he put it back in the closet. Or, you know, I went there to his apartment to buy heroin and uh, he got the heroin out of the top dresser drawer uh, in a box and then sold me two packages, you know, and so forth. On December 13th, the Cook County Sheriff's Department and the Des Plaines Police get into Gacy's home for the first time since the killings began in 1972. He came in to be interviewed at that time, and that's when I had a, probably a two-and-a-half, three-hour conversation with him. He had come into the station, as I said before, to be interviewed, and while he was getting the, while they were getting the search warrant, I had to entertain him because he wasn't being held, so I was just going to talk to him and try to keep him there without without telling me he could leave, you know, if he wanted. He was telling me how important he was, first of all, how he knew Walter Jacobson, and that how uh, 
He had uh, important friends, and, and uh, you know, I knew a lot of it was just BS, so I just kept saying, really, really? You know, tell me more about this. And he was in his glory, you know, he's a big blowhard. He just kept talking and talking. I didn't care what he said. I probably don't remember half of what he said, so long as he talked and didn't go anywhere. So actually he was asked to stay at the station, and, uh, and he did. He, he stayed there while we went. So while Gacy's sitting in the police station, the search of his house is being conducted, and he has no clue that that's going on. All told, during that search, the police end up recovering approximately 60 items from Gacy's house, ranging from a pair of handcuffs, jewelry, including a class ring from Maine West High School with the initials J.A.S. engraved into it, and several articles of clothing that contain what appears to be blood. But what they don't find is anything that directly links Robert Peast being inside Gacy's home. To be clear, when I say that they don't find any direct link to Robbie in the vehicles or the house, I'm saying that in terms of it being 1978, because they did find the blue parka, a green shirt, and a pair of yellow underwear, all that had possible blood stains on them. And most telling is a stretch of nylon rope that appears to have human hairs attached to it. Now, you and I both know, based on what we heard with respect to Gacy recounting the murder, that Robbie was strangled not stabbed or shot. So the odds of the blood on the articles of clothing belonging to Robbie are slim. However, that piece of rope with the hairs that was recovered from the house? Shit, that's a smoking gun. We will get back to that stretch of rope in the next episode. Sometime after the search has occurred and Gacy has left the police station, he gets back home knowing that the police have just ransacked his house. What Gacy knows at this point is that number one, They didn't find Robbie's body because it wasn't there. And two, that they didn't find anything inculpatory because, well, he was standing in his house and not in a jail cell. The following exchange between my father and Gacy drives at a bigger point, which is how concerned was Gacy that the cops may have discovered a graveyard in his crawl space? He says, I looked down in the crawl space. The reason I went down in the crawl space is when I got in, in the house there, there was the white line was all over the goddamn quarry stone floor in my entranceway, and also on the wall. It looked like they came up out of the goddamn hole after falling around down there. And they had put lying all over every goddamn thing. And I was pissed off about it. I, I, I couldn't figure out what the hell they went down the cross before because there was nothing down there. But you knew there was something there. What I'm saying is in regards to they were looking for peace. Okay, there was nothing down there. Okay? There was no undisturbed ground. There was nothing. So they went down in there, and they must have crawled all over because they come up with lime all over them. They just smeared the goddamn lime all over the house. I was pissed off about that. David Cram says that I went down in the crawl space. I did not crawl around. I just crouched down and made a complete 180-degree circle and came back out, which is the truth. Uh, They asked me where else I looked. Uh, he claimed I went to the attic. I don't. Why did you go down there? What? Into the crawl space. I just explained to you because it's goddamn uh, the plastic stuff. So I what? what? I mean, why would you go down there? You know what I'm getting at? I mean, why did you go down? Was there? I going down there to, to, to see, see if, if they, they discovered it? No, that wasn't out of mine. I didn't think of that. So my father is asking him point blank if he went into the crawl space to see if they discovered the graveyard. 
And Gacy's response of, I didn't even think of that, is incredible. This guy's mind at this point has to be racing nonstop. What is very clear from this clip is that Gacy, after having survived the search of his house without them discovering his terrible secret, is only concerned with the peace killing. He's relatively certain that he's in the clear for the other 32 people that he's murdered. So Gacy says, I didn't even think of that. Well, I guarantee not only had he thought of that, but that as soon as he walked into his house that he made a beeline to the crawl space to see whether they had done anything other than just look around, like dig. I can't even imagine the relief that he must have felt when he saw that the cops had not been digging down there. At this point, on the 13th, I have to think that Gacy fully believed that he had gotten away with murder again. As I dug into this case much deeper than I ever had previously, one thing became crystal clear, and that is if Gacy was active, say, now, there was a 0% probability that he would have remained undetected for so long. I hazard to guess that maybe he would have gotten away with two or three murders before he was apprehended primarily due to the fact that the tools, technology, and science that law enforcement has at its disposal now is light years ahead of what it was in 1978. There was no DNA analysis back then. That didn't become a thing until 1986, when scientists first used DNA to convict Colin Pitchfork for the rape and murder of 15-year-old Donna Ashworth over in the UK. That scientific breakthrough revolutionized forensic science as we now know it. Back in 1978, it was basically fingerprints, blood samples, hair, and fiber. And that was basically it. Now, imagine if they had found that rope with the hair on it today. It would have been rushed to the lab, and they most likely would have received the results within 24 hours, as they would have pressured the lab to get the results back to them. And don't get me wrong, DNA alone will not secure a conviction, but it is incredibly strong evidence and certainly would have been enough to get Gacy off the streets. Now, if you're a true crime buff and things like property evidence sheets are kind of your thing, well, we've got you covered. We have uploaded copies of the original inventory sheets so that you can see everything that was recovered. It's pretty interesting, so check it out. And looking back, I can't help but feel great admiration for what law enforcement was able to accomplish in the 10 days with the limited tools that they had. There was no GPS, no social media, no surveillance cameras all over the place, constantly recording everything that we do in our daily lives. I mean, this was good old-fashioned police work, talking to witnesses, matching up stories, really digging for clues that were not readily accessible. It was really, really very impressive. And the one piece of evidence that really cracked this case wide open, well, I'm not gonna tell you about that one until the next episode. So what does all this mean in summary? This means that they don't have enough evidence at that point to place Gacy under arrest. In all actuality, they aren't even close. In light of the fact that the police don't have enough to get Gacy off the street, Lieutenant Kozenzak orders 24-hour surveillance on Gacy with two teams, five officers total, which will start on December 15th. Those officers are given no instructions on how to handle the surveillance, covert or visible, or how to handle the possibility of Gacy approaching them. It matters not, though, as Gacy quickly realizes that he is being watched. Think about it. The man had literally gotten away with murder for at least six years. The heat is coming down on him like never before, and he is quickly realizing that he killed the wrong kid at the wrong time in the wrong town. Anyone who has been that proficient at evasion for so long 
is bound to know that the gig is just about up. Please make sure to join us next week for episode three of The Defense Diaries as police close in on Gacy and he knows it and there's not a damn thing he can do to stop it. And hey, we also really want to hear from you. So make sure you email us at defensediaries.com and also remember to subscribe, share, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Defense Diaries. And be sure to check out our website at defensediaries.com for additional content.